Good afternoon, everyone. Why don't we go ahead and get our conversation started. My name is Damon Wilson, and I'm, I'm the Executive Vice President of the Atlanta Council for our strategies and programs. And it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you, as well as our guests, to this discussion on getting to $500 billion in U.S.-India trade. A view from Indian industry, uh, we're looking forward to, to hearing from our guests. I want to express my gratitude to each of you uh, for your first stop on your program here in Washington, for being here with us. Um, we look forward to hearing your perspectives uh, on the current business environment in India and exploring opportunities to take the U.S.-India trade relationship to new levels. Um, I'd also like to particularly thank the Confederation of Indian Industry for their collaboration and making today's event possible, uh, as well as much of the work we've done together in India. Um, we're very proud of the partnership we, we have with the Confederation. Um, we're just coming off a, a very successful conference, uh, thanks to that partnership in New Delhi this year, on India-U.S. Uh, relations 2015, partnering for peace and prosperity. And we're looking forward to partnering again this fall on a megacity security conference in Mumbai in November. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, I'm also delighted just to announce that at that conference, uh, we've just recently heard that the Minister for Urban Development and Minister for Parliamentary Affairs, Naidu, will inaugurate that conference uh, in Mumbai in November. And so as this engagement demonstrates, the Atlantic Council has strategically taken a look at the significance and recognized the significance of the growing U.S.-India uh, partnership. And we focused our programming on that partnership, not just here in Washington, uh, but it also in India, to address the opportunities and the challenges to that relationship. Um, today, the United States and India are building, a, uh, are building on a joint government initiative uh, to raise bilateral trade from $100 billion to $500 billion over the next 10 years by engaging the private sector. And as noted in the joint statement, Following the release of following President Prime Minister Modi's visit uh, to Washington in 2014, uh, the statement read U.S. and Indian businesses have a critical role to play in sustainable, inclusive, and job led growth and development. Um, and so, this is what we want to drill down on today in our conversation. There's great potential for expanded bilateral trade, technology, and infrastructure, energy, pharmaceuticals, um, and we're honored to be joined by, today, by leading entre uh, entrepreneurs from India. <laughs> Who represent those industries can offer that insight. Um, Prime Minister Modi campaigned on an economic platform and promised to energize India's economy. And today's discussion, I hope, will shed some light on the progress that's been made thus far. <coughs> Just a week after it was announced that India did sustain economic growth rate of 7%, um, despite instability across economies in Asia this year. Um, and so we're also keenly aware, as well as some of you in the audience who I see have been working on this issue, aware of the obstacles that must be overcome to realize that potential. Um, so for all the talk of India as a U.S.'s natural ally in Asia, trade between the two countries lags behind that aspiration and that rhetoric. Um, significantly, the World Bank still ranks India uh, 142nd ease of doing business. Um, and I think it's partly as the U.S., Indian industry leaders and both countries work to capitalize on the opportunities for this increased trade and prosperity by overcoming some of those challenges. The trade delegations, such as the one that we have here today, are critical in ensuring that the United States and India are viably on the pathway to actually meet that $500 billion uh, trade goal. So without further ado, let me turn over the floor uh, to Mr. Chandrajit uh, Banerjee, the Director General of the Confederation of Indian Industry. Uh, to say a few words and kick us off, and then our, my colleague Bharat will moderate our conversation. So, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, well, uh, you know, 
CII, uh, which is uh, India's uh, Apex Industry Organization, we have been focused uh, with our relationship with US for now nearly two and a half decades, and uh, very strongly. Uh, while links existed earlier, but it's since the last two and a half decades, we've seen very special attention being given by the Indian industry uh, towards uh, enhancing this uh, huge potential of a relationship. Uh, so it's about uh, 20 odd years back that we set up our office uh, here in Washington, D.C., uh, one of our first overseas offices. And since then, uh, we have seen a large number of uh, exchanges, both at the business side, the business to business side, institutions to institution side, but also from Indian business side, like this group, which comes once a year to talk to the administration here on several and not, not just talk about India, but to also learn, learn as to how uh, the, the perspectives from the United States to see how we can, uh, when we go back home, work with our administration, how to work with our policymakers to see, build a more conducive relationship towards, uh, towards uh, uh, not just trade, investments, and much more. Uh, the last 10 to 15 years, the way we have seen uh, the relationship has really evolved. And uh, from, uh, from a story of suspect, from a story of not wanting to talk to each other, we find a story which is of friendship, a story that we, uh, we value and respect not only each other's democracies, but the type of potential that exists uh, in terms of business and trade. And this has actually resulted in uh, uh, a large number of policy initiatives by the two governments, as we have seen, towards making the uh, business climate even more, uh, even more friendlier. And in, this, in that connection, as we and you talked about uh, uh, how do we grow from 100 billion uh, US dollars trade, and we uh, today vision uh, something around 500 billion dollars of trade. But the issue is just, just not going to be uh, how do we increase our defense purchases from US from 12 billion. The issue has to be how do we co-produce, how do we, co uh, how do we co co collaborate uh, towards, uh, towards looking at each other. So India's, if you see India in the uh, map of uh, where we are in terms of an emerging economy, our aspiration levels, uh, the need for India to grow. There is today India is growing at a modest, uh, according to us, a modest seven percent. Seven percent looks to be a big figure uh, uh, across the world, but to us, seven percent is something that is much below what we want to grow. We want to grow at ten percent, and for us to grow at ten percent. We need manufacturing to grow at 13 to 15% year on year for at least the next 20 years. And that's the type of opportunity that we see the United States have in India. And for that, our imports are going to increase. Our non-oil imports have to increase because we are a developing and an emerging economy. So the potential is huge. The potential to just not uh, buy from the United States, but collaborate with the United States to co-produce with the United States in sectors which has uh, which uh, 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 which are emerging right now in in, in India. We have a, a, de a demographic uh, situation where 50% of our population is, is going to be below 25 years of age. So, if, if, and with a 1.25 billion population, you can imagine the type of demand that India is going to create if it grows at 10% plus in the next few years' time and and beyond. So that's the type of opportunity that exists, and that's the, uh, that's what we from CII would like to work with institutions like yours to see how we can really enhance this, uh, enhance this, and facilitate this uh, growth and achieve that 500 billion so. Thanks, thanks, Mr. Banerjee. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy, and I direct the South Asia Center here. 
So I have the pleasure of moderating this discussion, and I'm going to take a step back and start from here. Um, you know, Secretary Kerry, in his first initial public appearance during his confirmation hearing, said, foreign policy is economic policy, and economic policy is foreign policy, which is another way of saying that economic issues, which are often thought as a strange appendage to strategic conversations, are actually at the center and the heart of those strategic conversations. So, which goes back to Damon's point about saying, if you do not, um, for example, our trade with India is 100 billion, and we are both, our nations broadly agree on matters of principles and security, but yet we cannot get the trade right. Whereas China and the United States are geostrategic adversaries, but the, the thing that keeps the relationship flourishing is the trade, which amounts to 600 to 800 billion dollars, however you want to look at it. So, and what did Secretary Kerry do um, after, after early this year? If you look at, the, look, at, look at the sequence of events. First, he spoke here at the Atlantic Council. And he spoke specifically on energy issues, which has a national, national security and a strategic dimension. Then after that, he went to Sharm el-Sheikh, where he spoke at an investor summit in Egypt and emphasized the need for getting the economics right as a means to stabilize the region. And the third thing, and the third important thing that he did after that was go to India to a vibrant Gujarat summit. It was not the Secretary of Commerce, nor the USDR, but it was a Secretary of State who represented the United States at the highest level at that summit. So what does this tell you? Is how trade features into the broader strategic dimension of US-India relationship, and what that actually, uh, what is, what, how, what is the government trying to do to place economics at the heart of that relationship? And the second example of how you find this taking place is the, the, the U.S.-India strategic dialogue is now upgraded to a U.S.-India strategic and um, commercial dialogue. So you, you increasingly find how this commerce plays an important role. Having said all that, you know, um, we all know what the challenges are facing this relationship and getting this trade element right. And what um, and nobody has that magic bullet, and nobody knows how this will all fall into place. But to start, some of these things start at home, and for that we are blessed to have people from the private sector, practitioners from India, who would come and say, uh, who would come and share their perspectives and views on how this is um, this has been happening in India over the last 13 months. Everybody's uh, hopes have been built around the Modi government, um, who is trying to power on an aggressive economic agenda, but where do we really stand? And for that, this is going to happen. The modalities of this is, I'm going to start throwing questions. I like my spot because it's easy to throw questions at people and not necessarily have to feel the answers. And I'm going to open the conversation by throwing questions to each one of you. And feel free to jump in in between the conversation to make it more livelier. And again, yours is also a much enviable spot because you can get to ask the questions directly to them. My thoughts. My thoughts. That's fine. <laughs> um, so, my question is to Mr. Forbes. Congratulations on your president designate as the CII. Um, so, from CII's perspective, what are the spe some of the specific reforms that your members are still hoping to see undertaken by the current government? What are some of the priorities, top priorities of agenda? where the Modi government is concerned, and how do you, sitting from where you're sitting, how do you see this playing out? 
So if we look at now, it's been uh, about a year and four months that the uh, government has been in, in office. And the government came in having raised huge expectations. Uh, huge expectations on, uh, uh, on uh, uh, a change in direction for the country. And more than anything else, a change in focus and a focus on economics, a focus on economic development, a focus on meeting the aspirations of people quite widely. And we've seen that those expectations then flowing into, into policy, into policy initiatives, into a whole series of uh, measures that the, uh, that the government has taken on the ground. Let me give you a few. One, uh, a very welcome initiative around Make in India, uh, which has uh, the objective of raising the profile of manufacturing in the country. There are a few pieces to it. There's an ease of doing business piece where many useful things have happened on the ground. Uh, but a lot of the action now needs to happen, uh, if you like, at the non-legislative level. It needs to happen at the state level. It needs to happen in the way in which policies get implemented on the ground. And that action has started, but we are all clear that there's a long way to go uh, in really seeing that start gaining traction in a serious way across states and across uh, the intersection of different ministries. Second. Uh, the other Make in India piece is the investment piece, and uh, we've seen some very useful results on the ground. For example, one of the best signals of Make in India has been a recent announcement by Foxconn uh, to, uh, to invest very significantly in, in India. And they are saying that they will create uh, a million jobs uh, over the next uh, 10 years. And a million jobs may not sound like a huge number relative to manufacturing jobs created in China. Foxconn employs, as you know, 1.2 million people in China. But total organized sector manufacturing employment in India uh, is about 7 million people. 1 million in the context of 7 million people is a very significant number. Uh, and it's the way in which growth can spread and become much more inclusive. It's the way in which, uh, uh, it's the way in which we can grow our productivity. Uh, as a country uh, rapidly. One data point and then if if you look at average productivity levels in, in, in India, there's a huge range from in different sectors. Modern manufacturing in India, uh, if you take the productivity level of modern manufacturing and you extend it to the rest of the economy, you take the organized sector manufacturing, extend it to the rest of the economy, India would have a per capita GDP that's the same as South Korea's today. So uh, we would be able to grow our per capita GDP by a factor of 20 uh, if uh, we can get the rest of the economy to have the same productivity levels that we already have in manufacturing. So there's huge potential then in manufacturing, both from a growth perspective, from an inclusion perspective, from a uh, from a wealth perspective, uh, and this is a this is a process that uh, that we I think just starting down now. Uh, a couple more on points on the reform side. Uh, one of the key reforms that's pending is the, is the is the goods and services tax. Uh, it has the potential to transform the way in which uh, otherwise a rather twisted tax regime leads to leads to investments in manufacturing in one state and. Uh, and, and, and not vertically integrated, uh, integrating or sourcing from a small firm or uh, but rather 
rather it's it's not very it's it's rather dysfunctional in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the, the the efficiency with which one can manufacture. The goods and services tax um, has been talked about for a long period of time. Uh, the government is absolutely committed to it. Uh, it's being passed in the uh, uh, in the lower house of parliament. It's pending in the upper house of parliament. Uh, we all have great confidence that it will pass uh, within the next few months, and we will see it become law and start and, be and being implemented. We hope from the first of April next year. Our own estimate at CII is that the GST will add between one and a half to two percent to annual GDP growth. Um, that's a very significant contribution uh, that can be made to India's GDP growth going forward. So again, um, lots of potential. Uh, I, I have a comment actually on the 100 to 500 billion now, and, but maybe I'll come to that later on. Yeah. I'll also come back to that, some of that. I want to bring Mr. Banerjee into the conversation. You know, there is a high, mo high momentum in the bilateral USA partnership. And how do you see your role, your role meaning the CII's role, evolving in this context? And what are you focusing on, especially in terms of increasing trade and investment? So, uh, you see there, uh, Noshad mentioned about some of the, uh, you know, critical missions that the government has started in the last 15 uh, months. And one of the, one of the main important mission, of course, was, is this entire uh, mission of Make in India, which relates also to ease of doing business. Otherwise, Make in India would really not happen. But along with it, one sees several other opportunities which are emerging in a study, CII, study which is a very recent in nature we look at about uh, 2.1 trillion dollars of investments which are required in india in the next five years time so that's a huge huge number now where all will these investments go into uh, we have uh, we have uh, the prime minister talking about uh, uh, digital <coughs> india where again it's a huge opportunity for us to participate in which talks about 250,000 indian villages getting connected um, uh, by, by, uh, by a digital network. We, have talk, we talk also about uh, smart cities, 100 smart cities coming out, uh, coming up. And these smart cities have actually been uh, identified today. And uh, we as CII uh, uh, are, are actually working with consortiums around the world and, we, uh, uh, and bringing in multilateral funding. And we have been also working with the state governments to some of them building the new capitals. So these are areas of uh, of investment which uh, which 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 are uh, which which have tremendous uh, opportunity for the United States. But I want to talk about uh, one particular sector which is going to be uh, extremely important. And with the Prime Minister Modi's visit, uh, uh, the second visit to the United States coming up uh, uh, very soon in a couple of weeks' time. You know, we have uh, uh, we uh, we are encouraging in India today. Uh, entrepreneurship. Today we have a new uh, ministry which is focused on entrepreneurship uh, and therefore India today is uh, is undergoing and he recently announced on the 15th of August uh, our uh, Independence Day about a, uh, about a startup ecosystem and that's something where India uh, where CII is going to get involved in where we are looking at uh, creating uh, an institution where we will encourage more startups to come into in, uh, into India and to create again an ecosystem where startups can grow in India. We see United States playing a huge role. I, we were all of us there at uh, in the West Coast yesterday, and we see United States really um, helping or rather mentoring some of these uh, 
some, uh, some of these incubation that we will run in these startup centers to help uh, create not only a, a regulatory ecosystem, but also the startups to, so startups to actually take off in India. So there are several areas which, which one sees of new types of investments that are coming up in our infrastructure sector, which talks about a trillion dollar investment in the next five years. Uh, so which, which are coming up for uh, coming up uh, uh, with opportunities for for the United States, and that's where CII is going to work on with bringing to connecting uh, business delegations, energy. I've talked about infrastructure, energy, uh, renewables is going to be one. So when the energy minister comes, we've talked about the commercial and the strategic dialogue. We'll see a large number of our ministers coming in at that point in time, and CII would be see, uh, looking at how we can get. The policymakers to talk to business over here and business to talk to business over here to see that these investments actually fructify and we can facilitate those investments taking place in India. Now that Make in India has been mentioned, I wanted to bring in Mr. Sani into the conversation. Your um, India is one of the largest manufacturing companies. Um, what is your view on the Make in India campaign and do you think it's a win-win proposition? Well, let me simply say yes. I think it is a good proposition. Importantly, it's a it's a clear message that's been sent out by the central government to uh, the investing community, to manufacturers within India, to multinationals looking at investing and expanding capacity within the boundaries of India. Uh, the potential is enormous. Uh, we've talked about a few of the sectors. And I think one would have to pinpoint certain sectors. So you'll see investment in a few sectors take off before other sectors. There will be a logical progression. Infrastructure is going to be one of the most critical areas where there will be investment. Chandrajit spoke about power. I think uh, energy and power is a, it's a very, very important uh, uh, barometer for the progress of the Make in India story. Uh, there is liberalization that is expected in the transmission, in the distribution, in the generation of electricity, be it through fossil fuel, be it through renewables, etc. And an important facet for trade, an important and a very important facet for the Make in India story. Uh, manufacturing innovation is another critical area. So, yes, you know, we've, we've come from California, there's a great deal of interest. People want to participate in that, people want to bring technologies um, and uh, approach the concept of frugal innovation. Now, what works in the US is probably not what's going to work in India. One will have to tailor technologies, tailor innovative ideas to the Indian populace. Just to throw out a metric, about 120 million people joined the Indian so-called middle class in the last 10 years. That is a third of the US population, or approximately a third of the US population. It's a massive massive amount of people that have an appetite to be able to spend. Uh, they have demands and those demands will certainly be met with the Make in India, uh, Make in India model. Now, um, I think some of the other critical areas in infrastructure would also include water and we've not spent enough time really talking about that and I think there is a great scope for partnership within the field of water, water resources, reclamation, desalination technologies, etc., with the United States. Um, a subject that actually has not uh, gained very much mention over the last few years, but I think going forward with the kind of uh, stresses that we have 
in our economy, I see a lot of investment happening in that area as well. Uh, again, all uh, leading towards the Make in India story, because there is a great amount of emphasis on local manufacturing. The central government has been very clear that it will give preferences. Be in defense, of course, it's very clear, because there's a 30% offset requirement. But in many other critical infrastructure areas, preferences will be given to domestic manufacturers um, and uh, <clears throat> will lead to great opportunities in terms of tie-ups, strategic partnerships, and the like. I have some follow-ups again, which I'll come back to later. Um, I want to bring in, meanwhile, Mr. Kapuria for the conversation about your, your company is in the small and medium-sized enterprise spaces. And you're also investing in the US and working closely with the US companies. Um, could you identify a few sectors that you think are going to grow and change? And on the trade front, what are the better integration of some of the small and medium-sized enterprises that could be a game changer? What do you, what do you think are the concrete uh, sectors that you can identify? Um. Let me tell you that uh, our company, uh, the Indian context is not small for me, but in the context of what we see here is possibly in the medium space. But uh, more and more what is required is the engagement of the small and medium companies within the supply chains. And where the success actually happens is when the large corporations need to cooperate there needs to be an ecosystem and partnership where the whole supply chain also needs to come together to service what is required at the end. Let me give you uh, an analogy and uh, our experience in the sector that we are in. Uh, we are in many sectors, primarily the auto and auto component sector, uh, where we make powertrains and uh, powertrain components which get uh, nearly 30% of them, 35% uh, 30, of them are exported around the globe and large part of that production also comes to uh, North America. And we are also in the high-end engineering software, we are also in the high-end uh, uh, robotics uh, which means AGVs, UGVs, uh, also some vision-based systems and some artificial intelligence-based systems. So uh, all this means that we are in uh, a major part of the supply chain networks. And that is an analogy which needs to be taken forth, whether it is in the auto sector, or whether it's in the aerospace sector, or whether it's in the defense sector. So uh, I just let me step back a little to define the whole landscape. So it's, so, so it's more con contextual that when we talk about uh, make in India, make in India and made in India, there's, there's a huge amount of difference. Uh, make in India means that you could be a part of any part of the value chain. And within that value chain, uh, because in today's world, nothing is a single country product. If we see from conceptualization to getting serviced, it is primarily a global product. So, uh, and now let me get back to the auto sector. A lot of the powertrain components we make in India has a single source. They come to, they come to uh, first uh, 
and I'm giving an example. Some parts go to Europe, uh, primarily Sweden. Uh, some process gets done here. Then it comes to, to the North Americas. Certain process and sub-assemblies get done, done here. <coughs> and they get back to India and also possibly Korea, etc. get distributed. So it's the complexity of these production networks uh, which have evolved because of economic and other market addressable reasons would mean that if you want growth, you want to be engaged in these networks. And in engaging in this process, you need to have technology for which if you want to get engaged with the newer products which are in the advanced markets, we have to have a footprint here. Thus, we are investing here. Uh, we are investing to engage for, for, a, for a concrete exa example, there is the cafe regulation which is on in terms of consumption, in terms of emission, uh, which the, the pass cars need to have in the coming uh, uh, future. And we as a component supplier from India, if we don't, if you're not here engaging with the engineering, engaging with the technology, we'll be left out of the whole scope, which primarily that, uh, that technology is going to bump India as well. So getting into this would be that you need cooperation vis-a-vis the second tier and the third tiers to to come to the demands which are then put on them by the larger larger OE suppliers. Now that would be a way to scale up. That would be a way of job creation because job creation is as essential, I would say, for 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 um, for the U.S. as more so it is for India. And uh, we have to move towards manufacturing because still a large section of uh, uh, the workforce which is deployed and, and uh, giving a very small portion of the GDP which is the agriculture. So the, so the reskilling needs to get done and move to the manufacturing sector. And it is the job creators, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether the small and medium companies are actually going to be providing these jobs. And thus it is I think an imperative to see these, this sector of the economy getting engaged with each other. Thank you. Mr. Modi, the pharmaceutical industry um, has grown a lot, or, lot in India over the past few years and Indian drugs make a big percentage of all drugs sold in the United States. What do you see are some of the trends in the industry and how does your specific sector react to questions about India's IPR regime not being as strong as it could? So first of all, India's IPR regime is compliant with WTO. There's a lot of myths, dialogue and uh, talk by think tanks with right information, inaccurate information, policy-driven information, advocacy-driven information. But you know, set the uh, ground straight. IPR, India is IPR compliant with WTO. Okay. So, but now, India is, as, as, as many of you in this audience would know, um, one of the largest producers of generic medicines. Indian medicines, the highest quality and affordable prices, provides and heals billions of people, billions of population of India. Not only that, billions of people around the world. Low uh, GDP countries, 
less developed countries in Africa and uh, other parts of the world to very, very highly developed, strong economies like Japan, uh, United States, Europe, and so on. So products of Indian origin, medicines of Indian origin, are of the highest quality, accepted because of their price and competitiveness in India, which heal billions of population of India and Africa. There's a tremendous change. We all hear because you know, there's a change in India, there's a new leadership, there's new uh, connectivity to the world. Uh, people are looking forward to the development of India. That's what we would like to see, including United States. And so the model is to work together, partner together. And as has been said by various people, including President uh, and uh, his colleagues, India and United States are natural allies. The largest democracy, we have heard a lot about that, the largest democracy and the oldest democracy. So I think we are natural partners. And I think, you know, time has passed, a lot of things happened. Uh, this conference would never end if we talk about the history. But there is a renewed uh, change in the global social, political, economic system, which has resulted in the acknowledgement of India and the acknowledgement of a strategic and economic partnership between uh, our two countries. And I think pharmaceuticals and medicines which heals, and which is important, just like food and shelter is so important, is one of the basic needs of people around the world. And I think pharmaceuticals is one area where if, uh, and in my, in my vision, uh, if these two governments work together, if the two industries decide to work together in a collaborative fashion, in a collaborative fashion, because both of them, the, the pharmaceutical industry from the United States, which is innovation driven, but is also realizing that access to medicine is so important, so they are getting into generic space. And the Indian medicine, which is pioneered and, and being one of the hubs of making medicines. When both of these uh, groups of people reconcile, work together, when the governments have decided to work together, it itself could generate two, three hundred billion dollars of revenue. So it's a very, very important sector. And that's why I say it's a very, very important sector as this partnership uh, goes from the current level from strategic to economic, and, I, and so I think uh, it's a very key fundamental uh, in the development. Um, India, uh, the policies in our country, uh, the industry and the government are working closely, so that the policies in the pharmaceutical space, life sciences space, uh, acknowledge the fact that because of the access of medicine uh, and the access to latest technology and new knowledge, uh, there has to be a, a way by which uh, life sciences and innovation is nurtured. Uh, the Indian pharmaceutical space is, I would say, learning, entering into the innovation space after having uh, being a dominant player in uh, the generic space. Uh, policies, amounts of funds allocated by global Indian multinational, Indian-based multinational companies is increasing to bring about innovation. There are few successes in the short term, and we hope that in the next uh, decade, you would have first in the world medicines coming out of India. So I think it's a wonderful time, both politically and because of the maturity of the Indian industry. The fact that it provides these medicines has created a wonderful infrastructure and ecosystem uh, to satisfy the needs of people around the world, including people in America. You know, it's a statistic which many of us quote in this, uh, in such forums, which is one in 10 tablets consumed in America is ma manufactured, made in India, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the, the, the access of medicine and the uh, 
uh, whole space of pharmaceuticals, life sciences, both from generics and innovation, uh, would provide a tremendous anchor to this goal of the two heads of state uh, in a significant fashion. Finally, the next important sector is the energy sector. It's one of the most crucial sectors. And the Modi government has set very ambitious targets for renewable energy generation in India, and the aim is to get 100,000 megawatts by 2022. Do you think this is feasible, and what, what specific steps is your company taking to respond to some of these ambitious targets? And solar has emerged a sticky point in all of these negotiations. So I'd be glad to hear anything. Yeah, so I'll uh, take a step back and start from if India is going to grow between 7 and 8 and 9% eventually, going up to even 10, we'll have to double our existing capacity of 270 gigawatt by uh, 2022, 2025, or 2030. So that's the kind of energy we need to fuel the kind of growth that we uh, envisage. We have two choices. One is, of course, clean, renewable energy. The other one is uh, thermal. Uh, fortunately, what has happened in the recent past, the cost of solar and other renewables has come down tremendously. And it is almost at grid parity with the new thermal power. Although, because the quantum of power required is so much, only renewables will not be able to solve all the solutions. But can renewables get a, a, a giant chunk of the lot? I think so. And that's why the Modi government has actually planned 100 gigawatts of solar by 2022 and 75 gigawatts of, uh, of wind. Of the 100 gigawatts, they have planned 60 gigawatts of uh, grid connected and 44 uh, rooftops. So uh, let me just break it down to what has happened already since in the, in the last year and a half. So last year, India did about one gigawatt of solar uh, grid-connected projects. But this year, since uh, the Modi government has been on, almost six gigawatts have already been tendered out, five to six, and another five or five to six gigawatts are going to be tendered out in the next two quarters, where the RFP is already out. So you've already gone from one gigawatt to 10 gigawatt a year. And once you win the tender, or once the tender is done, it takes about 14 to 16 months for the plants to come up. So whatever is being bid now will eventually come up. But the reality is we've already gone to uh, a 10 gigawatt a year uh, run rate. So at 10 gigawatts multiplied by the number of years, I think we're almost there. That's for the grid-connected solar projects. Going on to the rooftop solar projects, government has taken it um, upon themselves to make every government building across the country uh, use solar energy and we see tenders for that coming out almost every week other than that states some states especially like haryana have made a law where you can't open all the industries have to have a certain amount of energy from rooftop and you can't build a new house beyond a certain size without having rooftop solar so there is a lot of policy behind uh, the plans that they have put in place so i think yes the Target is steep. 175 gigawatts is not a small number by any any measure, but it is achievable, absolutely. I have. Could you identify yourself? Uh, sure, uh, Dave Thomas, Inside US Trade. Uh, my question is, uh, 
uh, primarily for Dr. Modi, although others uh, wanted to weigh in. Uh, you know, it's important. Welcome. We believe in democracy. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, sir, you mentioned that, like, you mentioned kind of flat out that you believe that India's IPR regime is compliant with the WTO. I'm sure you're aware of the fact that many U.S. lawmakers and U.S. business groups, uh, you know, want to see improvements, or at least in their mind, they want to see changes to India's IPR regime. I was wondering, do you see a common interest between uh, Indian industry and U.S. industry in terms of changing and amending India's IPR regime? This is a very good question. And uh, because there's a lot of myths going around, <coughs> reasons I've mentioned to you, I wanted to be very eloquent and simple and clear and direct. So I still state that we are WTO compliant, and which is what is relevant. Uh, you know, as you all know, uh, IPR is a very interesting phenomenon. I mean, we don't want to go into what is IPR and why IPR and so on. But every country, every zone has their own definition and rules around IPR. Uh, I should be excused if I make some statements because of my poor English. Uh, but what is IPR relevant in the United States may not be relevant in United Kingdom, is not relevant in India, because the whole fundamental of IPR is to, uh, so so what is right in the United States may not be right in India or in other parts of the world. And um, so, now talking about the industry, I think um, there's a tremendous pressure for availability and access of the highest quality medicine, the latest medicine for people around the world. It's a problem which all regulators around the world work with. Fortunately, fortunately because of uh, the wealth, the legacy, uh, the markets, the United States being one of them, uh, the pharmaceutical companies have benefited by pricing their innovative products at an unaffordable uh, high uh, price. And this is already in debates in all your magazines, all your journals, all your press. So I think the important, even the United States, with its highest GDP level and most advanced uh, ecosystem, has acknowledged the fact that it is a human, basic human right for people to have access to the latest medication and the quality medication. And I think, therefore, there is already a debate among the global pharma companies of addressing the issue of access versus price and access versus IPR. So it's now in the future one would see evolution of various models of uh, how uh, access, price and IPR will be balanced uh, and that's what uh, you will see emerging over the next uh, few years. Yeah, I wanted to add something to that if I may. The, you know, the, the, the contention uh, between some U.S. pharmaceutical firms in, in, in India is on two issues. It's on uh, compulsory licensing and the use of compulsory licensing, and on evergreening and the permission and permissions for evergreening of patents. Uh, on compulsory licensing, compulsory licensing has been used in India twice in the last ten years. So it's not something that is used uh, frequently, uh, and certainly there's a need for greater clarity and transparency in the criteria that would be followed uh, for where compulsory licensing is indeed justifiable. 
Um, the US too has uh, compulsory licensing as a part of its patent law uh, and has, if not used it, threatened to use it uh, on some occasions to get, uh, for example, uh, ciproflaxin uh, to be sold at a lower cost uh, when uh, a national emergency uh, seemed to raise the public health needs for, uh, for, that, for that intervention. Second, when it comes to evergreening, um, my own view is that uh, the Indian position is actually very good for innovation uh, because there is a US view that says that evergreening is not the US, it's not US pharmaceutical industry's view, but it's, there's a strong US view in, uh, in, in, in law schools in the US uh, and uh, including, uh, the president has spoken about this too, that says that evergreening is actually bad for innovation. Uh, and that uh, uh, if you, uh, it's a way in which one extends patent life uh, beyond uh, beyond a period uh, that is really needed uh, to provide adequate incentives for innovation, and actually ends up limiting the scope for innovation instead of enhancing it. Uh, and I would support that view, uh, and uh, would actually make the argument that the Indian innovation system uh, and the U and the world innovation system is actually better. Uh, for not going down the road of uh, permitting more widespread use of better premium. There's one, uh, uh, one additional fact I think we need to know that uh, some, somewhere when we talk about the IPRs uh, and the veneer towards pharma, <coughs> if we move away from that, I think the compliance and we'll leave that as a, as a kind of a gray area uh, where the interpretation issue, the evergreening issue, and the issues of uh, the compliances, there is this zone where, where there is absolutely no issue on any of the other manufactured products. So whether it's uh, in the auto industry, which has huge number of IPRs, uh, whether it's in the electronic industry, a huge amount of IPRs. Uh, and, uh, if we, if we look at major research which is happening within India for MNCs, uh, which are uh, you know uh, large, very large MNCs having their R&D footprints in India, employing uh, each one of them employing about ten to fifteen thousand people, and they are filing IPR at a rate which is uh, which is unimaginable. You know five hundred. Uh, patents getting getting filed by Microsoft, uh, by uh, likes of Bosch from uh, from the auto industry. So a, there is a bit of an outlier. Uh, so rest is all fine. There's a bit of an outlier which possibly needs to be addressed in, in a more uh, structured manner. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. you referred to the Prime Minister's coming visit uh, later this month. Uh, so my question is, uh, the first visit, on his first visit, the focus was on, as far as the industry is concerned, make in India. And this visit, the focus is on digital India. That's why the West Coast leg of the visit, which is, which is where he's visiting Google, Facebook, Tesla. So as an industry body, what would you be looking for from the visit, what would be the takeaway, what would be the high points of the visit for you? 
Any, any, any of the gentlemen can take it. I'll just take one more question before I get you to speak. The gentleman there. Yeah, yourself. I think I saw your. Me? Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask about. Um, Foreign direct investment, and if the Federation has a position on the caps and of, of, for FDI and various sectors of the Indian economy. On caps, 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 caps. caps. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Ben. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Make It India was uh, uh, the first, uh, one of the first uh, missions that got really announced, and we saw the impact of it. Uh, strongly uh, the panelists have spoken about it but going from there I think uh, the focus on uh, with the US to go uh, on the digital side on the innovation side on the technology side on the uh, on the uh, on the entrepreneurial side of the West Coast is going to be very 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 important and we look forward to that focus coming out strongly in that visit because uh, the type of uh, technology uh, that US has uh, has got to offer India uh, uh, to 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 fulfill in India's developmental needs are phenomenal, and that's the reason why I think this this focus on digital and on innovations and on technology uh, is something that we would really look forward to. In fact, we have also just come from the West Coast, and uh, we have been really exploring our uh, our tie-ups and our uh, um, collaborations with some of our uh, some of uh, some 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 of the U.S. companies based out of here with our Indian counterparts. So we do uh, look forward to that, uh, uh, to those focus areas uh, to, be, uh, to be very important and significant in terms of uh, taking this relationship between the United States and Any India. Any specifics? Yeah, Any specifics? Specifics, details, uh, in terms of what technologies especially are you looking for? Well, I mean, you know, solar. I mean, we, are, we were all there at Tesla yesterday. Yeah. So, so, so it, it, it's, it's, it's on various fronts. And then manufacturing innovations is something that one would look forward to. And that's, that, that's going to be the next area for, in, for, for, for India. So that, uh, uh, even on, uh, when we talk about infrastructure, energy technologies, etc., these are these are new emerging areas for India to actually uh, look at uh, uh, look at uh, look at U US and digital is going to be important. The, on the issue of uh, FDI cap, CII has always been talking about uh, competition and uh, what we do talk about is a level playing field. Actually, level playing field for both Indian companies as well as foreign companies based out of India. So it has to be. Win-win uh, or a level playing uh, both sides, and uh, it is uh, us who had talked about uh, opening up of the defense sector from 26% upwards, and we have seen it come to 49%. And in fact, we also welcome that it's just not only 49%; that even more than 49% would be possible, uh, provided that you bring in uh, particular types of technology. So there is a window of going beyond 49. Insurance is another area where we have talked about opening up. So general's position of the CII has been to uh, really support and actually work towards <coughs> opening up uh, opening up several sectors which had uh, caps on FDI. And for all general manufacturing, there, is, there have been no caps now for 20 years. Yeah. 100%. Uh, I have two related questions. Uh, one is, what are the synergies between Make in India, Smart Cities, and Digital India? Because that seems to be some confusion over here in the U.S. as but the PM has initiated some great programs, but for companies, these are three very distinct programs. So how many resources or people or focus can you do when you have three very distinct but relatable programs? 
And what I would love to hear uh, from my uh, colleagues from India is also, uh, when it comes to making India and job growth, what role does trade agreements play in the growth of the Indian economy? Uh, some of the critics here in the U.S. have said that with India not participating in the four major trade agreements around the world, how are you going to make making India work because you just can't grow jobs just for domestic consumption? There has to be some kind of export component to it. So I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts. I'll take one more question. Yeah. Uh, Matt Brahaska with the Boeing Company. Uh, quick question with regards to evergreening and innovation. Uh, would you say the future focus of aerospace engineering in both civil, uh, commercial, and also defense uh, is focused towards the innovation curve or more focused towards uh, the integration of technology that you're, you're talking about at this time? So. I'll take the second question here and the question innovation, if you like. But the first question, maybe someone else would like to have a crack at on the uh, on the uh, convergence or lack of <laughs> between uh, between between smart cities, uh, digital, and uh, making it. Yeah. Sure. Okay. You know, all these couple, all these uh, these mission mode programs. If you see, uh, sort of converge at a larger set. And the larger set, the visioning, visioning was that they're emanating out of two issues. One is the inclusivity, the other is sustainability. Now when you talk about inclusivity, inclusivity means engaging the total populace in terms of the growth of the economy. And one section was that, uh, first section was that make in India would engage also a value add in terms of manufacturing. However, manufacturing, the enabled part of inclusivity is also through digitization. And also is the issue where the, uh, I, I think is the, is the greatest leveler. If, if information flows to the, to the last man in the village, uh, it immediately makes it a level playing field for him in many ways. The other major program is Skill India. So that this also rides on that, on digitization. So there are. Uh, it doesn't also mean that when you are when you are talking about the whole aspect and the value chain of Make in India, it's not looking forward. Because if you look at Industry 4.0, uh, you are going to be talking of Internet of Things. You are going to be talking of uh, digitization of manufacturing itself whether it's additive manufacturing or innovation, whether it's in an innovation space or wherever, wherever it is. So besides the job creation, which get, it gets to the village level through this aspect of skilling and also manufacturing and also transforming uh, the agricultural set for it. So all this converges into these two major programs. And finally, the aspect of uh, the smart cities. The smart cities finally, uh, you know, uh, it's it's not subjective. So that so in that aspect, the sustainability aspect comes forth in a very big way. And all these things are the basic enablers, whether it is uh, skilling or whether it's digitization. So they they contribute as enablers to the smart city. So well, that's a short answer. You know, I can go on uh, trying to uh, make it more more granular. 
So the point of the question yeah. on trade agreements, uh, you know, I, uh, I think India's stance on trade agreements has largely so far been somewhat defensive. In, in other words, it's been uh, a stance of, uh, uh, you know, how do we, how do we negotiate with an, on an agreement that someone else wants um, in a way that is as protective of India as possible. And I think there's, a, there's starting to be now a change in how trade agreements are being seen in India where India is starting to look at trade agreements now as an opportunity to grow our own markets uh, and to see trade agreements as a way of providing access to Indian firms as opposed to trading off access to the Indian market for foreign firms. Um, and I think this is a very positive development. Uh, and what at least many of us would like to see in CI is to see Indian trade agreements focusing on parts of the world uh, where Indian firms can actually uh, expand their market and expand uh, successfully the area in which they operate. Uh, so I think combining that uh, renewed and new focus on trade agreements as an opportunity for Indian industry uh, with the Make in India program would be very effective and very productive. And I think we we'll start seeing some of that happening going forward. On no, the no, evergreening, can I can I just yeah. add on this? So it's, it's very essential to understand that. Uh, uh, that India believed in the multilateral set and for a very long time did not enter into any bilaterals or any regional sets till, uh, uh, till the, the, uh, the Doha round, the, the DDA started just going down and down. So the developmental round got, got so dissipated and lost and newer agendas and papers were going being and the ambitious plans were being put by the developed world that for the developing nations the agenda was totally totally dispersed and today itself i mean uh, if we see at the multilateral forum what have we achieved you know only trade facilitation and a bit of the peace clause that's about it I mean, that's nothing, nothing more to say for it. And thus, the world around was getting into these uh, issues of bilaterals. And India started in that way to say that, you know, uh, we also need to get into bilaterals. So the, so the look east policy, getting engaged with uh, the Asian countries. And thus, there were some, uh, you know, comprehensive economic and investment agreements which happened over time. Now, in this this state, obviously, in the in the trade negotiations, there are pushes and pulls, and now you see the mega trade blocks coming in. In the mega trade blocks coming in, uh, it is very evident that India does not uh, see itself getting left out. The first step is to be a part of APEC, and in terms of that to we uh, somehow get got left out somewhere in 1993 uh, where we should have been part of APEC but uh, somehow uh, you know that that was a mystery how we get got left out but now is another move where, where not only the industry and the government is committed to joining uh, the APEC and thus a preparatory methodology to prepare itself and thus use it use APEC as, in, as an agenda for internal reforms. So that accelerates the number of issues getting to standards 
and getting to we are going to be having a meeting soon with uh, the ANC uh, and uh, looking at the overall standards and moving things forward in terms of the internal reforms and thus engaging more and more and and uh, making ourselves prepared for the TPP. So that's uh, that's how uh, I think today the thought process. Is. And in fact, just before T TPP, uh, we are. Uh, uh, while TPP may be a little further away for India, we are working with, say, for instance, as an industry organization with the commerce uh, commerce department of uh, uh, the government in terms of uh, or in terms of standards. So we to to set ourselves get get ourselves prepared, and we are today very closely involved in RCEP, uh, and and of course India would would uh, would aspire to be in RCEP, and that's something that we are looking at very very closely. So it's RCEP first, and then going on to the uh, to uh, to something else, and for which we need a lot of preparations for ourselves in terms of standards. So for the last two years, actually, uh, standards have become a, a top of the top of the agenda point between commerce and in, uh, industry when we are looking at uh, these mega trade blocks. wanted to talk about yeah, just, a, just a, a minute on the evergreening point in regard to uh, aerospace and defense. Uh, India does not uh, does not have India's patent system does not provide for utility patents. Uh, just like the just like the US system, there are no utility patents so far as I know. Uh, and unlike say, the Japanese, Chinese, or Korean systems, which do have utility patents, and where there's a multiple, a multiple of the total patents are utility patents, and therefore small, small patents as opposed to bigger, more fundamental innovations. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's probably the right thing. Uh, it's the right thing for the innovation system to actually uh, protect uh, IPR that involves uh, a significant degree of novelty. Uh, so I think that's the, that's probably the right way of thinking about uh, uh, patents in India, patents in the U.S. Uh, and uh, evergreening is is a, is a specific issue for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, it's generally not been uh, discussed in uh, at least in India in any context with regard to any sectors outside of pharmaceuticals. No, we'd refer to it as built to design yeah. or something yeah. of that effect. Um, just sorry. Excuse me. We just yeah. understand. You can have an offline conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, my hosts are telling me that they're running out of time and they have to rush to the next meeting. So in the interest of time, I'm going to plug both your questions. And I have one question of my of mine, which would be a one word answer. Sure. So starting from there, Mr. Jane. Yeah, we know Jan from India US World Affairs Institute. Uh, I've not been hearing a lot about the $500 billion target. I've been hearing about a lot of other things, which are also very important. But anyway, the question is, uh, oh, another observation is that perhaps if India didn't get included in the APEC, is, uh, India doesn't touch the Pacific Ocean? Could India doesn't touch the Pacific Ocean? Maybe that's why. At the Atlantic Council, we believe it's Indo-Pacific and not Asia-Pacific. Okay. <laughs> we, don't, we don't touch the Atlantic either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, the question is, uh, are you utilizing the Indian diaspora in the U.S.? I mean, just yesterday I heard that there are 75,000 IITians in America. 75,000. Some of them are really smart. Not everyone, but some of them are really smart. And uh, that's a great resource. I'm not one of them, but I know many of them. They're also a resource. <laughs> and uh, uh, what, what are we doing to reduce uh, India's position on the ease of doing business from 146 to 30? 
Yeah, my question was regarding, my, Dave Ramaswamy, my question was regarding Indian agriculture. You know, the sector has been growing at 2% while services manufacturing has been growing close to double digits. And so there's this big yield gap between Indian productivity and productivity even in China. So where do you see the opportunities as CII? And Prime Minister Modi has achieved 10% growth rates in Gujarat, a semi-arid state, which is incredible. So what do you see as like one piece of advice you would give him to kind of turbocharge increase in Indian agricultural production? And my Great final example. question will be, you know, everybody, I think nobody's touched on this point, but the last couple of days and over the last few months we've been reading the news, which is the ghost of 1991, where foreign investors were left disappointed with the, with the pace of reforms in India. Is this concern overblown? Is this something that you disagree with? Or is this something that this should be more nuanced than what it is? If you read things like Jim Rogers' interview and stuff, which is making the news. So why don't I start from you, Mr. Banerjee, and then start from the extreme run. Yeah. Uh, you expect a one-word answer, right? And uh, I think a one-word answer is, uh, no, I think it, it's, uh, uh, we don't have such a fear. I think that's a completely poor out of questions. But to really add one more sentence to it, uh, you know, in 1991, we saw, uh, uh, the external reforms. We didn't see internal reforms. Now what we are seeing is we are seeing external reforms, the continuation continuation of external reforms, but a lot of focus is being given to internal the internal reforms. And there is where I would like to answer your question briefly before Torun uh, really uh, expands on it. Uh, agriculture. You talked about Gujarat. Yes, Gujarat. Also Madhya Pradesh, which was a, a Bimaru state, right, with an agricultural growth rate which was near to zero. It's, it's growing at double digit for the last three years, agricultural growth rate. So empowering the states and, and, and agriculture being primarily a state subject and, and getting more and more states to actually act on agriculture for them to see and giving more powers for them, uh, the APMC uh, uh, Act, etc., where the states have a role to play would really see agricultural growth rate pick up and we will talk about technology and let Tarun really expand on it because he knows much more about it. And uh, yes, we are involving the diaspora. Today, uh, what's happened, uh, uh, there is a strong focus from the, uh, from the government on diaspora, which was never there earlier. Uh, we see the Ministry of Overseas Indian Affairs becoming much more proactive uh, and reaching out. Uh, in fact, uh, 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 we are ourselves uh, 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 with the government of India uh, uh, created an organization between the Ministry of Overseas Indian Affairs and CII. Uh, that organization is known as OIFC, which is the Overseas Indian Facilitation Center. And that really helps uh, attract diaspora investments into India. And uh, so we are uh, reaching out across the world with the Ministry of Overseas Indian Affairs to see how we can really tap the type of uh, uh, wealth the Indian diaspora have and the sort of uh, connect that they today look at uh, uh, towards India. Uh, we see uh, the example of China where there, there is a lot of learning for us to do. And uh, that's what we are trying to really focus on. Thank you. So, so let, me, let me take your question first. I think uh, uh, CD's really talked about the, uh, the role of the center and the state. One has to recognize that both play a very important role as far as agricultural reform is concerned. Uh, the center is certainly looking at it very, very closely. Um, there are policy-related changes and initiatives that have to come to center and state level, and they are coming slowly. The APMC Act we've spoken about is something that CII has been 
talking about and harping on about for well over a decade, reforms in that particular act. That's agricultural marketing. Now, everything has to go hand in hand. We have to look at yield and productivity increases. We have to look at legislative changes. And we have to look at the entire value chain of agriculture in terms of generating that, that growth and generating wealth for individuals involved in that particular sector. There are isolated examples of states having done a good job, Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, mentioned. But the larger number of states have actually suffered, which is why the total growth rate has been very, very little. To give you an example, California has nine times the productivity than India, average, power and power. And why is that? There have been, to answer your question as well, we're working with a group of IITians in California involved in the field of agriculture to answer that particular question. So I'm happy to take that conversation offline, but I'll give you one example. The tractors that are sold in India plant seeds at 18 inches below the soil. In California, seeds are planted a full foot lower, increasing productivity levels by a good 20 to 25% just by the fact that you're getting more nutrition. So that's just one small thing. So there's work that's being done within the automobile sector, the automotive sector, to actually upgrade the powers of tractors. Very simple innovation, nothing much required. Then there are fields of entomology and pathology, looking at plant sciences. Again, this is an area where the governments play a very important role because there are restrictions. You can't just go out and create your own breed of seeds. You're not allowed to do that in the United States either. So one has to embrace technology, embrace changes, and I think from state to state and from the center, you're finding that people are becoming more accepting of that. So there has been talk of another green revolution. There has been talk about, um, about really improving agricultural productivity. But the value chain will also play a very important role going forward. So investments, not just in the field of agriculture and in related areas, but also in the entire value chain, cold storage, warehousing, um, markets, etc. Huge areas of opportunity, huge areas of collaboration, especially with a country like the United States. Because the United States as well, it's a very large country. So there is movements of goods, agricultural goods, over very, very long areas. There are interstate movements, there are whole host of issues that the U.S. has faced 20, 30 years ago that India is facing today. So we have a lot to learn. Um, and um, again, another area for great partnership. Thank you. If there are any closing words, want to comment on the 500 billion? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so comment on the 500 billion, which is, uh, you know, the, I think sometimes the thing that holds back the India-US relationship in terms of really achieving its potential is that we expect the other country to be like uh, to be like some other country as opposed to being like ourselves. Uh, let me explain. I think on India's side we expect the US to be like Japan. Yeah? That the Japanese government decides something and things happen. You know, uh, uh, infrastructure gets built, um, there is a major loan that is provided. Uh, the, 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 the Delhi-Bombay freight corridor gets uh, funded. Um, that's not how the way the U.S. works. The U.S. government facilitates uh, private industry in the U.S. Uh, at best. Um, I, I learned uh, as a student in California for many years um, 
I was always given this message that Washington was to be viewed with some suspicion um, and that the US was actually not about Washington and much more about industry and happening all around the country. It's the same in India. Uh, it's just the same in India. And I think on the US side, I think the US sometimes expects India to be like China. You know, that things happen in an organized, systematic, planned manner. Uh, they don't. We're a noisy democracy. Uh, maybe not as, maybe, I think we have a much oh, noisy. Yeah. 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 Not, as, not as noisy. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think the US is as noisy. The US, but the US is also a noisy democracy. Um, not as noisy as India, fortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you can understand that. And I think for the US to expect things to happen in India in this perfectly planned, clean, nice, organized way uh, is unreasonable. Expect it to happen the way it happens in the US, you know, where the government will actually do certain things and do most of the time the right thing, but not necessarily all of the time. And the politics is not always perfectly functional. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, the progress is, uh, is solid. And if one takes a longer-term perspective, as it has reasonable expectations, and I think we'll we'll get to that 500 billion. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.